0: Coming up on today's show, a number of Alberta airports haven't been open. Several have across the country and, you know, a couple in Alberta, but we're way behind. Why? We'll find out. We'll speak with Todd Lowen, another UCP leadership candidate. We'll find out how he's feeling about how this campaign has gone so far. And an absolute legend joins us today, Lou Ferrigno. All right, a story that I think uh, we need to spend a little time talking about here, and uh, we'll find out exactly what's going on and see if we can't get a response. Um, this week, a large group made up of government, um, industry, business professionals, all of them coming together to call on our federal government to show some action on Alberta airports, most of them. Uh, at least the ones that welcome international arrivals, remain closed in our province. Very few have been reopened, especially when you compare it with other provinces, and it's causing some big problems, as you might expect. So to tell us what's going on, we're going to chat now with Jim Johansson, who is with the Board of Directors for Cooking Lake Airport and part of the group that made this submission and asked for some clarity from the federal government. Jim, thanks for joining us. I appreciate your time. Oh well, uh, thanks for inviting me on the show. Shay.
2: I appreciate
0: it. Yeah, so I mean, just describe the situation for us, Jim. I mean, how many airports are open in Alberta? How many are closed? Uh, where do we stand right now?
2: Yeah, well, in Alberta, we're 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 dead last in the country on a per capita basis in terms of um, airports reopened to international arrivals. And maybe, maybe just a, a little bit of clarification. So most people are super familiar with. Um, Passenger flights. Sure, yeah. uh, Taking Air Canada or WestJet out of um, the Edmonton or Calgary International airports. Uh, Those airports have been reopened uh, and they're operating fine. Uh, But the passenger flights are are typically only about 20% of the aircraft that are in the air at any given time. The other 80% fall into a category that's called general aviation. And that's everything from helicopters to firefighters to private to corporate to you know, logistics, uh, you know that sort of thing. So typically, what happens in a large metropolitan center like you would have around Edmonton is you would have a, a an international airport like the Edmonton International serving primarily the passengers, and then you would have smaller airports that serve the general aviation fleet. And those are the ones that we've had a real tough time getting Ottawa to reopen, uh, especially in Alberta. So uh, yeah, like uh, to, you know, not, nothing to be proud of. But Edmonton is actually the largest. Metropolitan, or the fifth largest metropolitan area in Canada, we still have no, no general aviation airports open for international rivals yet here.
0: Okay, so in terms of where we stack up, like you say, we're, we're far behind the rest of the country. Give us an example. Like, what's the situation, say, in B.C. or in Ontario? They have most of their airports, some of their airports. What What's the situation? Uh, yeah, they've
2: actually opened a tremendous number of airports in B.C. So, for example, uh, they've reopened 27 airports in British Columbia, and they've reopened them at uh you know the Canada Border Services Agency has three tiers of service uh, depending on type the type of airport the location the type of traffic they expect um so they they they've opened 27 airports in BC to uh, the mid level of service okay. um, in Alberta uh they've opened four airports to uh sorry two levels two airports to the mid level of service and two airports to the highest level of service so, um, so yeah, technically, BC has got know, usually
0: ten times the number of uh, mid-level service airports open as Alberta. So, what's the follow-up for this? I mean, what what what's the issue that we're facing here in Alberta because we don't have these airports up and running?
2: Well, it, it impacts um, uh, it impacts our economy. So, for example. Um, uh, a lot of the general aviation flights are serving everything from aerial survey to medevac to um, corporate to business to flight training. Um, you know, like just about everything falls in there. I, I had a call from the flight school just the other day that they're wondering when they're, when, when custom service might be restored to, to the airport they operate out because they've had to suspend their cross-border training um, curriculum. Yeah. Uh you know, for the last two and a half years. So they've been graduating pilots without that part of the training co- having been completed. And uh there's still no end insights for them, unfortunately. So, you know, that that's an impact on flight training. But uh, you know, business users um you know, they're having to find other places to land. Uh and you know, not not to you know, Alberta isn't totally closed. Like the right. good folks at the Edmonton and the uh, Calgary International Airports. They have been absolutely super in accommodating the the extra GA traffic, um, the general aviation traffic, while those airports remain closed to international arrivals. But there's a huge cost both to the Edmonton and Calgary International Airport and to the airport op- or to the uh, general aviation aircraft operator. So, um, so general aviation aircraft tend to be smaller, but you know. Anywhere from two to to ten to fifteen seats, uh, they travel about half the speed in the air as a commercial jet would, um, and on the ground they travel they maneuver at about one third of the maneuvering speed on the ground. So it really slows up the traffic mm-hmm. at the uh, international airport. So that that's a that's a negative impact on the international airports. Uh, and then to the aircraft operator, um, they end up having to pay you know, pretty steep fees to use the, the airports. Uh, anywhere, depending on the size of the aircraft, anywhere from 250 to to $1,000 just for landing and ramp fees to, to clear customs.
0: Wow. Okay. Now, um, what's the, what, give us a timeline? Like, is this something that's just come up, like, or are we talking about this has been going on for months? Where we're seeing other airports that are open in Alberta, isn't is this is this something that's happened in the last week or two, or something that's been going on for a good long period of time?
2: It's been going on for far too long, to be honest. Um, you know, we've been petitioning the federal government since the beginning of this year, actually, uh, to, to address the, the critical need in the Edmonton area in particular, because there are no GA airports open in the Edmonton area yet. Um, and, uh, you know, last May, they, they turned down a request to, to reopen the Cooking Lake and the Villanueva airports serving the Edmonton area. And that same week, uh, they they announced the reopening of 254 docks in Ontario plus another 20 airports in Ontario, so it, it's not a resourcing problem. It's a priority problem, yeah. and that's the struggle that we're we're trying to figure out is how do we get back on the priority list because nobody's
0: listening to be honest. Yeah, and you've petitioned the government. What what's the response? First of all, what's the reasoning? Why are these airports closed and, and why haven't they taken any action? Are you hearing anything from them?
2: Um not not anything meaningful or tangible it's it's mostly like you know we'll, we'll get to it when we get to it um you know and we get it you know they've been they've been tremendously preoccupied with the the bottlenecks at toronto Pearson. sure Delta okay in vancouver uh and we get it but you know at the same time we, we couldn't help but notice they're opening hundreds and hundreds of dock sites across ontario and bc or uh, ontario and quebec and bc but Alberta's is getting left out so it, it's um you know, it it it's definitely a priority problem and it's just trying to get on, on somebody's uh somebody's radar to do something about it. Um so that that's kind of why Premier Kenny weighed in this week with some fairly strong words for Ottawa about uh you know, keeping Alberta at the bottom of the priority list and uh, uh the Alberta Chambers of Commerce also mm-hmm. you know, weighed in and, and they said, Look, you know, Alberta businesses uh are just as important as BC businesses and Ontario businesses, like what gives? so it's um yeah you know i guess all we can do is just uh, try and create more awareness and get more people kind of asking the tough questions of Ottawa, like, why, why, are, why are you leaving Alberta out of the equation here for reopening uh, uh, the province to international traffic?
0: Yeah, well, Jim, I'll, I'll tell you that we do have a request into uh, Marco Mendocino on this uh, to try and get him to come on the air here and explain what's going on in the province of Alberta. We haven't heard anything back. He's been on the show a few times, so maybe he will, uh, and uh, hopefully we can get some answers from him. But in the meantime, I appreciate you coming on and uh, telling us what the situation is. Thanks very much. All right. Continuing with our UCP leadership candidate interviews, uh, we're going to chat with Todd Lowen now. Of course, uh, Todd, one of the candidates in the running, one of the the, the uh, independent candidates. I mean, there's so many going, so many things going on. So let's let's get the latest from Todd, um, Mr. Lowen. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time.
1: Hey, thanks, Jay. Happy to be here.
0: Okay, so let's just start. Uh, we had the um, the forum yesterday up in Fort McMurray, and once again, just like this entire campaign, it seems like ultimately it comes back to this issue of the Sovereignty Act. Does it frustrate you that it seems to be this is where the focus has been for several weeks now, or are you okay with that?
1: Well, you know, I'm I'm okay with it, actually. I think one of the big issues that's, uh, that's came up everywhere I've been is our relationship with Ottawa. <clears throat> so, when we, uh, when we talk to Albertans and that's what they want to talk about, then I think that's, uh, that's fair game. Uh, Albertans are frustrated with Ottawa and their relationship with Ottawa, and uh, that's coming out loud and clear. So discussions on the Sovereignty Act, uh, I think, are fair game.
0: Um, as you know, of course, uh, four of the candidates in this race decided to get together and uh, get on stage and denounce the Sovereignty Act. You weren't there. Were you invited, and why did you decide not to go?
1: Uh, yeah, I was invited, but I didn't want to go. I, I think that was, uh, you know, it basically showed a sign of desperation and disunity, uh, showing up at the, that news conference. Uh, there's, I guess, some of the candidates are are desperate to try to make uh, make an impact, and they have to take a position opposite of, uh, I guess, who they maybe view as the front runner. And uh, but again, that that did nothing for unity in the party, and uh, and I don't think it did anything to uh, to further anybody's cause on on that matter.
0: Um, in terms of uh, the discussion around it, uh, and you mentioned disunity, and I think you know we're certainly seeing that there's a, a group within the candidates uh, that are opposed. There's a group that support, or at least are neutral. Um, in terms of unity, um, are you worried that? I mean, it's part of the campaign, right? You're going to have disagreements. Is this does it affect unity overall? I mean, the whole point of the process here is to unite, to come together once again as a conservative party in Canada, in Alberta. Um, do you feel that that's being hurt in any way?
1: Well, you know what? You're right. Though in the end, we all have to come back together on this. And and there's uh, you know there's definitely positions that are being taken taken in this leadership race that are you know that are you know people are polar opposites, and that's fine. That's part of the political process. Uh, but he, but you're right. In the end, we got to get back together. And I say th- I think there's uh, that there's no problem there. I, I think everybody's committed to come back together. I think there's one candidate that's that suggested that if he doesn't win that he may not uh, may not run again. But other than that, the rest of the candidates seem to be willing to uh, move forward with whatever the the uh, members of the party decide.
0: And and that and I mean it goes without saying then that you're planning to run again as a member of the UCP, right? That's that's the plan that you have, whether you win the leadership or not. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Um, outside of this issue of sovereignty and uh, the relationship with Ottawa, what are you hearing from people? I- I've been hearing a lot about health care. Um, has that been something that's coming up uh, when you talk to people? Is that something that's important?
1: Yes, absolutely. It's uh, it's one of the main things uh, that, that comes up at every uh, event that I go to. People are concerned about health care. They're concerned about AHS. They're concerned about uh, having a family doctor and keeping uh, emergencies required. Yeah rooms open in rural Alberta uh, all those things that they're concerned about concerned about AHS and its performance over the last 13 years
0: so I mean there's a number of different things there Uh, just let me ask we I'm sure you've heard the horror stories we've all seen them they're in the news it seems like every day uh, this patient waiting for this this person waiting for an ambulance it goes on and on and on right from you know every aspect of healthcare. what's the fix what what's what's Todd Lowing proposing so that um, you know if I need an ambulance this weekend one's available
1: well, I think one of the problems we have is we've had 13 years of uh, centralized decision making from AHS, and that's been uh, that's proved to have been a failure. Uh, we, we need to go back to more local and regional decision making. That, that's uh, that's one solution. But again, we, we have a shortage of healthcare professionals in Alberta, and we have our, our post-secondary education system is not producing the people that we need to, to uh, provide the services needed for Albertans. And uh, so that's another failure that needs to be fixed.
0: When you take a look at AHS, I mean, how many more times are we going to do deep dives into AHS? How many more millions of dollars are we going to spend analyzing AHS? I mean, the Kenny government did one two years ago that came back and said, you know what, the bureaucracy is really not all that out of line. It sort of lines up with, I mean, we, we keep hearing that we keep getting fingers pointed at AHS, but it's a creation of the government. That's why it's there. I mean, how do we fix that if, if we just are the ones that keep bringing it in and, and doing all these investigations that come back and say, you know what, it's really not the problem.
1: When we look at our, our system uh, compared to other jurisdictions that have socialized health care, uh, our spending is near the top, our results are near the bottom. Yeah, for so sure. That points immediately to to the fact that there's something wrong. And uh, so doing all these studies and everything, uh, you're right, haven't been productive. Uh, they haven't got the results that we want and, and haven't shown what we need to do. Uh, we need to talk to our healthcare care professionals on the front lines. Uh, when I'm talking to Albertans, uh, when I when I talk about what needs to be done with AHS as far as gutting it and, and going back to regional decision-making, the biggest cheers that I hear in the crowd are from healthcare professionals themselves. So they know the, the problems, they see the problems, and they're, they're as, frustrated, uh, as frustrated or more than Albertans are.
0: Yeah, Todd, you're absolutely right. I hear that from listeners all the time. I agree with you. They always talk about the bureaucracy and the number of managers and the way AHS runs things, and uh, so there's no doubt an appetite for looking into that. The question, though, is, I mean, that That doesn't help me this weekend that doesn't help me probably in six months or a year or two years um and i think that's what albertans are really worried about what do we do now so we don't have people lying on the floor in the garage at the miz or the kid lying on the ice at the rink in calgary because an ambulance isn't available i mean what do we do now where people are really suffering
1: yeah, you know, and, and there's a, there's some things we can do now, but there is a lot of things that are going to take uh, a long time to fix. Uh, but we need to start on both now. We, we can't kick the can down the road anymore. We have to start immediately. When we see the uh, the ambulances showing up at hospitals and then uh, the ambulance personnel have to sit in the hospital yeah. all day long uh, to be able to p- pass on a patient, I mean, that's, that's unacceptable. That needs to be changed, and we need to be able to... Uh, uh, get get some of these, these fixes right away. Uh, we have uh, healthcare professionals that are trying to uh, come into Alberta and want to work, but we have a convoluted, time-consuming, expensive process to get them uh, here, and, and that needs to change too. We have students, uh, our own uh, Alberta-raised students that uh, couldn't get into colleges and universities here uh, to become healthcare professionals that are traveling around the world to get their education or choosing just a different career altogether, which isn't helpful either. Uh, But they they go through that same process as immigrants that when they come back to Alberta and want to practice, that they have this this process that takes too long and uh, and basically encourages them to go elsewhere where they can go to work right away. Um,
0: We know, of course, uh, within the UCP, there's a number of different voices. And perspectives and views, and we've, you know, I mean, that's how we got into this situation, and we've seen them all expressed uh, throughout the course of the campaign. As leader, if Todd Loan becomes leader of the UCP, how do you make sure? I mean, as you know, uh, the, the party didn't do the job with you and Lila Here was stripped of her. I mean, all a number of the leadership people are no longer, you know, within caucus or within cabinet because of disagreements with uh, the. Current premier. So, if if you become leader, how do you manage to have the voices heard, feel like they've been heard, be part of the process, but at the same time keep everybody together? What fell apart um, with the current government?
1: I think one of the one of the problems is we had a leadership style that was uh, top down. Uh, it was uh, kind of a uh, basically a one-man show or a very small group that uh, made all the decisions. And they uh, they failed to listen to uh, MLAs and caucus, for instance. MLAs are elected by the people of Alberta to represent them in government and in caucus. And if you're not listening to caucus, you're not listening to Albertans. And uh, and that's, that was the, one of the biggest failures right there. If we look at uh, previous leaders and what they did and how they handled caucus, uh, we see this substantial difference as far as trying to get caucus on side and listening to caucus and actually having uh, uh, caucus having meaningful input in uh, government direction uh, that's what's failed and I, I believe that a lot of unity could be brought back uh, to the party and to the caucus just by being able to listen and having people be able to express their views and and have meaningful input not just uh, not just words but actually meaningful input on uh, on the on what happens in government uh
0: mr lawn i thank you so much for joining us today i appreciate your time
1: chemistry. And now when David Banner grows angry or outraged, a startling metamorphosis occurs. The creature is driven by rage and pursued by an investigative reporter. Mr. McGee, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm
2: angry.
0: Oh, does that take me back. This is going to be fun. He is the Hulk, period. End of story, full stop for me and for so many of us. Lou Ferrigno is the Incredible Hulk. I remember waiting for that show to come on every week when I was a little. It came on in 77, so I was like five or six years old, and I, I had the rubber Incredible Hulk action figure. I mean, it was awesome. What a time, what a time. The Hulk was fantastic, and as I said, uh, to this day, the Hulk for me and for so many of us is and always will be Lou Ferrigno. I'm delighted he has time to join us today. Uh, Lou, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it.
3: Thank you. Good morning. How are you?
0: I'm great. Great. Uh, really excited uh, that you're here. Um, we'll get to the Hulk stuff in a bit and what's going on this weekend. First of all, I, as I was doing some reading, uh, getting ready to chat with you, I learned a couple of things. That, you played in the Canadian Football League for the Toronto Argonauts. Is that true?
3: Yeah, back in 1970, uh, I played for a short time because it was a great experience for me because... Um, I'm kind of forced into it by my father because I did well in the Superstar's competition, so I decided to give football a try. And uh, it, it was tough because, you know, Canadian football is on aftertaste. but I played uh, two semi-games, uh, and then I eventually left because uh, I much rather be in bodybuilding, but it was, it was a wonderful experience to spend time down in Toronto.
0: Yeah, and you were only there for a short time. Now, what I read said, and tell me if this is true, you accidentally broke somebody's legs in practice. Is that true? <laughs>
3: Yeah, to because even the tackle situation, I didn't want to get attacked or get knocked over. So, you know, I was very really strong at the time. I was benching over 500. <laughs> I remember playing the linebacker by the center. I just charged forward. The poor guy, he just sat down on the grass, He couldn't move his legs. So I wasn't too happy about that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that time you were, what, like 6'5", 320 or something like that? I mean, just enormous.
3: I was 6'5". At the time, I was 285. I was able to run a 40-yard down to 4.6.
0: Unbelievable. Incredible. Now, the other, that's
3: thing the, that,
0: the other thing that I read about, Lou, and I, I, I'm i still having a hard time wrapping my head around it almost 24 hours later. You worked as Michael Jackson's personal trainer more than once?
3: For 20 years, on and off, he kept it a secret because uh, he wanted to hit privacy. I trained him for the history tour. We were a we were good friend on and off for 20 years.
0: What was that like? I mean, how, how how do you go about training Michael Jackson? I've heard stories, just absolutely wild stories. What was it like? What was your experience?
3: My experience being with him, with him when he came to my facility, uh, in my home. I mean, uh, he came late at night. I mean, we were good friends, but he did everything I told him what to do, like for so like flexibility, stamina, toning, and uh, he was a very genuine person. But I had the chance to spend time with him because he's such an iconic character. Because I I, I worship his uh, Passion for music, and he have yeah. my passion for fitness. So we collaborated. We became good friends because we both had similar fathers.
0: Amazing, and and he, like, he took it to heart. He worked hard, and and he followed Lou Ferrigno's program.
3: Yep, exactly. And uh, the guy I'd be missed.
0: Oh no, no question. I mean, one of the greatest artists of of all time for sure. Hey, do you hate talking about the Hulk? Are you tired of people talking to you about the Incredible Hulk?
3: Never. The reason is, is because I've done over five TV series, I've done over 50 films, and the Hulk put me on the map, and I'm very proud of the Hulk, especially people respect and they worship the Hulk. And to me, when I do this show, like uh, this weekend... It gave me that wonderful appreciation because that show affected millions of people. And some people do TV series; they forget him, but the Hulk will be with me for the rest of my life, and I don't mind it because I enjoy people get excited when they talk about the character.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely. That's great to hear. I'm really glad uh, because I think you're right. It's not just a role. It it, it was such an iconic role. It was really. I mean, I, I, I was a very young child at the time, but everybody watched Incredible Hulk. I don't. Was there a bigger show in? On TV at that time? I mean, that had to be right at the top back in the 70s, early 80s, right?
3: Well, you got to remember back then, the only three networks, Channel four right. and 7 was like one of <laughs> a billion chance. So, Captain America and Spider Man at the time failed at the TV series. So I took my chance doing it because I was afraid that, you know, we might be having the same on my show. But I remember when it hit the air, it became just a huge bonfire hit, and every country in the world embraced uh, the Hulk.
0: When you watch, you know, what they're doing with superheroes now with all the computers and all the effects and stuff like that, I mean, for you, it was some green makeup shoot you from a low angle and the rest was up to Lou Ferrigno. You had to make the Hulk the Hulk. Do you feel like you did it? You know, and how do you feel about what's happening today?
3: Well, today, there's a lot of emphasis on CGI. Yeah. yeah CGI works great for Star Wars, different people. But sometimes I think it's being overdone because sometimes it's just, you know, uh, it's just, what, we're, what we're missing is the real love and the story, the real passion, instead of being dominated by CGI. Like, for example, the new Hulk. I mean, I mean, kind of cute, but not like the original. Nope. because You know, he's like, he looks like a professor, but the Hulk needs to be authentic, hideous and more like a sensible creature. That's why this community today still holds its own, because people rather to watch the TV series, because every episode has a laser compelling message about life.
0: What was it like um, with Bill Bixby? Um, you know, I mean, you guys were sort of the same character, but completely... I mean, how, how did that all fit together? Did you guys... Were you close?
3: We were very close. I, I would watch Bill do the scene on the set before I do the, uh, my scene, because okay. I have to follow through as an actor. You have to... It was the previous scene, but Bill was like a second father to me. I've learned a lot from him because when I first came into the business, I didn't know anything about acting, so he took me under his wing. I watched him. I, watched him, I studied him. Plus, I was a huge fan of him with his, his original series, and he was a very genuine
0: person. Um, you're not here for, for your health or to, or to make my day, although you have. Uh, you're here, of course, to talk about the event you're taking part in this weekend, the Edmonton Comic and Entertainment Expo. Um, what are you going to be doing there?
3: I'll be there doing uh, signing autographs, taking selfies, doing a Q&A, meeting the fans. It gratification because it's been three years since uh, we had the Comic-Con 2019, so I think it's going to be huge, bigger than ever, because people want to get out. They want to come back to a con and have fun. So I'm very, very excited to be here to be part of the con this weekend.
0: Yeah, how do you feel about these events? I mean, it's a chance, like you say, to meet these people and sort of interact with them. Uh, is it something that you look forward to?
3: Yeah, because they tell me stories how the Hulk affected their life, how much they love to show, how much their children love to show. we got three decades of fans. So for me, it's very exciting because I see a smile. I let them leave with a smile on their face. And, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't have to. If I would give anything. and have my parents take me to a convention to shake a celebrity hand. I would probably fainted. But I know how these people feel, and I know how you know, it brings back my childhood.
0: Um. Lou, I want to ask you about uh, where it all started, of course, and that's the incredible bodybuilding career that you had, and your rival throughout all of it for a long time was Arnold Schwarzenegger. What's the relationship with Arnold? I imagine years of competing like that, you have a relationship. Is it a friendship?
3: Well, we, he was my idol growing up, and we competed on stage, of course, you know. yeah, He's, he's, he's uh, almost 60 years older than me, so uh, we've been friends over the years because he broke down a lot of barriers, especially going to politics, being a, an A-list movie star, so I admire him for that, so it gave me a chance uh, to, for me to do the things as a tour man. I mean, Arnold, you know, he's come a long way because we both came from similar fathers and then uh, we're still friends. I have a lot of respect for him.
0: Lou, thank you so much for spending a few uh, minutes with us today. Have a great time in Edmonton this weekend, and uh, thanks thanks very much, sir. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcast. And If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.